you to think about who you trust. Who or what do you trust? Maybe the institutions, the family, friends. And think about what it takes to build that sort of relationship. It takes time. It takes vulnerability. It takes some honesty and integrity, right? Well, as we look into the book of Hebrews, the context that we're pretty sure it's written into is a congregation that is starting to lose trust in Christ. They're starting to wonder if their faith, their Christian life is worth it. And if this God who they have professed faith in, if he really is who he says he is. Because this, this book seems to be written to a congregation probably in Rome, probably between persecution from Claudius, the emperor, that they had endured through, which was mostly like imprisonment, taking of property, things like that. But there seemed to be impending more serious persecution on the way, or they were already starting to get wind of it from Nero. Maybe you've heard of Nero, just basically became insane emperor with intense, fatal persecution of Christians. And the book of Hebrews is written to them to say, endure, do not lose trust. Do not lose trust faith because they were tempted to go back to an easier, comfortable lifestyle. For them, it was probably a form of Judaism, which was just a more respected religion in the Roman Empire. It was more, um, wasn't persecuted. There were millions of Jews in the empire. The Romans appreciated the ancient aspect of it. But when they saw this Christianity thing, this newfangled thing that demands absolute allegiance to Christ, there was growing persecution. So there's this great temptation. So think about that in your own relationship to Christ. What is it that would threaten your trust? What is it? Is it, a, is it rival demands, rival gods in your life, school, anxiety over your kids, taking on more at work? Is it pain, the cost that you think it's going to uh, take away from you? Is it you're worried about what you're going to miss out? If you really trust Christ, if you really go more and more as a faithful Christian, if you really live life that way, are you worried what you're going to miss out on? Because all those things, I think, get at whether or not God in Christ is trustworthy. And into this context, the letter of Hebrews starts with this incredible one sentence of, this is Jesus. Now, if you're writing a letter to someone in that circumstance facing hardship and persecution, how would you start it? The letter here is simply saying, we need to exalt Christ. We need to know who he is, what he has done, what he has said, and why we can still trust him. And so as I begin this series on Hebrews, we're going to get to look at these four verses that are really almost a crown jewel of scripture. I hope you can uh, meditate on them with me. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for this day. We praise you for the resurrection of Christ, that we can come on the Lord's day to worship with your body. We do ask that you would make this word come alive, that this would not just be ancient, old, dead words on a page, but that your spirit would take them and use them, Lord, to your glory. Use them for our good. Convict us, challenge us, comfort us, that we may exalt Christ in our hearts. Lord, that is our prayer and desire, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And so as we look at these first four verses of this amazing, amazing letter, uh, he starts off by talking about revelation. How does God reveal who he is to us? And he starts basically waxing poetic, saying long ago, many times, in many ways, he did this. He did it through prophets, to our ancestors, to our fathers, he calls them. Um, he did it through poetry and psalms. And if you know anything of the Old Testament, it's incredibly diverse. God is making himself known by appearing on a mountain and speaking through Balaam's ass and doing all sorts of diverse ways as leading up to, we are told, what? And so if you notice what happens there, he's saying that there is this continuity, just like a relationship you have, there's sort of continuity ongoing that God has had a relationship with their tribe, with their ancestors, with their family. But that was all incomplete. That was all not enough until, and it's almost as if he's just laying down this trump card of, this is the final thing I'm going to say. And this is it. And so we have here the Son. God has spoken finally in the Son. He's the final revelation of God. And if you think about what that means, that should really stop you in your tracks. Because that tells us a lot of different things. One, it tells us we don't have to worry about some new Revelation. We don't have to worry about whether the story is going to continue and God may change his mind. He said a lot of these things in Jesus, but, you know, maybe he's going to mature past that. One of the reasons why we know this is, this is because he uses this technical phrase. Did you catch it? In these last days. So long ago he did his thing in the Old Testament, but now in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Last days? written 2,000 years ago. But it's the, the overwhelming uh, confession of the church that the last days began at the resurrection. And why would they call it the last days? Because God had manifested himself fully and judgment had begun. The last day of judgment had begun in Christ. And so if we're expecting something new or, or more innovative after Jesus, we're missing the point. That's how good the revelation is of Christ. He's, he's, he's almost revealing all of who he is as the final revelation of God's Son. And I happened to be uh, reading something yesterday, and it struck me how, how counter uh, to our culture this idea that God has finally spoken in Christ is. I found this article in the New Yorker called Improving Ourselves Today. And it was about uh, thinking of all the New Year's resolutions. Maybe you have uh, begun and all of these crazy uh, movements, these lucrative, this lucrative industry of self-improvement, self-help. And he goes through and, and he sort of analyzes lots of different uh, options, you know, and it's not just cheap sort of positive thinking. I'm going to put positive thoughts in the universe like it was maybe a decade ago. It's now this like data-driven, uh, serious intellectuals, serious professors and academics figuring out how they can get metrics on how to improve every aspect of your life. As one, one part he puts it, he says, uh, we are under pressure to show that we know how to lead the perfect life. 
It's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, then analyze the data, recalibrate, and readjust. Now, this article struck me. One, it struck me that all of these things, all of these different strategies, are at bottom, they are the law. They are giving us something to do. They're adding a burden to us. But the other, the other reason why it struck me, that they're not offering grace. But the, the, the main reason for this sermon is what struck me is that how frantic and desperate people are to find something new to save them, to improve themselves, to whatever it may be. Now, if, you, if you're in the middle of a New Year's resolution and, and you're counting your steps, that's great. Keep doing it. You know, it's not, it's not a terrible idea if it can motivate you to exercise grace. But it is amazing what we will do in our culture to find the new best thing to do. Is that part of what you feel, this anxiety, whether through social media and living up to this perfect imaginary life that we try to Photoshop ourselves into? We are trying to upgrade everything. Here we have God saying, no more upgrades needed. I have finally spoken in Christ. I did a lot of things, but they were incomplete until he did. We can trust the Son. And so he doesn't only give us the final revelation of God, of God he also gives us the complete revelation. And I want to... Uh, Talk about both of those. Because it's not just he's telling the story and he happens to end somewhere and he ends with Jesus. And so he's the final. It's also exhaustively who God is. Jesus, it's not that God is a, a, a big circle and Jesus is a part of it. We are told he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Now think about those two phrases. They're pretty wonderful. The radiance of God's glory. So when God shines, when God's reputation goes out into the world, he goes out in Jesus. When he shines, he shines Jesus. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you think of the sun, S-U-N, if you think of the sun in the sky, you can't look directly at the sun, but you see it through its rays. That's something that was happening here. He is the effulgence of God. He is what's being expressed, and it's in a way that will not condemn us, that won't destroy us. It's not like Mount Sinai, where if they touched it, when God was dwelling on it, they would have been struck dead. Jesus comes to us in a way that we can handle, in a way that we can see him, and yet doesn't sacrifice any of that completeness of his revelation. He's the exact imprint of his nature. We're sort of getting to the end of language here, right, when we start talking about the Trinity. But this word is really important, hypostasis. It's the, it's the same sort of thing as what he's saying. He's, he is God. It, it, it becomes key to talk about it later in the Trinitarian debates when they're trying to figure out, what do we, how do we understand this? And it was put down in Nicene, in the Nicene Creed, he is very God and very God. Light from light. True God and true God. 
meaning of when. We don't have to be frantically wondering, is there still something God's holding back? Now, in relationships, we're never going to know, are we? We're never going to know 100% somebody's soul. We're not even going to know that of ourselves. Here we have God saying, this is fully who I am. This is who I am. I am. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. The Son shows us who he is. He speaks honestly. He speaks vulnerably in not, he's not willing, he doesn't want to deceive us and try to keep something back. He's almost a fully open book with us. Us saying, this is not just my final word. God has spoken. God has spoken fully and God can be trusted completely. Now it's, it's hard to understand what that should do to us. But surely, this, this sort of FOMO that many of us struggle with, the fear of missing out, it's everywhere, isn't it? Don't we all, don't we all suffer a little bit from FOMO? If you're honest, at least a little bit, if not a lot. And it, it, it creeps into our soul in the Christian life as well. We always wonder... What am I going to miss out? Even right now, you're sitting here, the sun is shining, it's a Sunday afternoon. What am I missing out? There's something happening. When you read Hebrews 1, are you struck by this realization that there's, there's nothing that we're going to be missing out on if we're fixing our eyes on Christ? He is the radiance of God's glory. We don't have to hedge our bets. We don't have to uh, have one foot in, one foot out. You know, if this Christian thing doesn't work out, at least I can still have my education and my wealth or whatever it is. These are, these are great foundations. But I don't think it, it says seriously at all who we are told Christ is and what he's done. Listen to the way uh, Psalm 63 puts it. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because of your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The psalmist is not suffering from FOMO in that place. He's not. He's saying, I have a deep, intense need, and I'm going to look for it all to be filled by you, God. It is amazing. But if we, are to, if we are to move on, we don't, it's, it's hugely important to realize that God has spoken. This is the last word in Jesus. Now we need to fill in the content a little bit as far as, okay, so what is God like? If God, is, uh, if God has spoken definitively and completely in Christ, what does that mean? And again, we have some amazing uh, insight in this passage. So right before he says, the radiance and glory of God. He says, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So Jesus is the end, the telos of the story. He's the purpose of the story. A little later down it says, He sustains all things by the word of His power. 
So here he's talking about the son as the creator, the sustainer, and the heir. That is amazing. That is amazing for a lot of reasons. One is, back in Genesis 1, the son was active. He created all things by his word. When God speaks, he speaks Christ. He speaks the word. He creates all things through him. All things for him. And if you think about inheritance, if all things are meant for Christ, what does that change about how you interact with the, your, your day-to-day job, your desires, your, your pursuits? It's all meant to go to Christ as his inheritance, like it's, it was meant for him. Remember, inheritance in, in the ancient world, it goes to the firstborn son. Jesus is that firstborn son. We get his inheritance as those who are in Christ. So he's the, he's the purpose and the, the, the writer of the story, if you will. So not only are we encouraged to trust the son completely because it's the final revelation of God, we're also told that he, he is right. He is this powerful God who wants to do your life because he is life. Psalm 2 sort of gets at this as well, if you notice, Psalm 2, the Old Testament reading, I'll just uh, reference a couple of its verses. One is, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So he's talking about almost, it's almost mysterious, the psalmist is speaking ahead of his time. You could say he's speaking in Trinitarian language before he even realized. Because he's talking about what this Messiah King is going to be like, who it is, and it's and it's the Son who is the inheritor of all nations, who has the kingdom of God, who will receive it as his possession. But then, did you notice he says, "He who sits in the heavens laughs." There's this picture of an assembly of nations, an assembly of enemies of Israel, gathering up to fight against Israel. And he says, why do the nations rage? Why do they gather together and try to fight against me and against his anointed? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Can you imagine? Who do you laugh at? You laugh at those whom you know have no chance to compete against you. You know? If if LeBron is playing basketball against you, he's laughing at you. You have no chance. So it's not even a worthy competitor. And here we have all of the nations apparently raging. This psalm, Psalm 2, gets quoted in Acts 4 by the disciples saying, this happened to Jesus. This is what happened on the cross. All the nations raged. All the nations raged. They fought against God and his anointed on the cross. And God, this is quoted in the prayer in Acts 4, God, you have done everything according to your predestiny. He's still the king on the throne because even as the nations raged and put him to death, they didn't win. They didn't win. Christ still is king. So you have this incredible power and might and strength and purpose that we are told Christ is. And surely this fights not only the the sense of FOMO, but also the sense of, 
you can, you can read a passage like Hebrews 1 and then shrug. Like it's not that big a deal. Eh. He's the heir of all things. Eh. Really? You can do that? How could you do that? How could you actually read these passages and think that Jesus is not that important? That Christ, yeah, take it or leave it, not that big a deal. You do you. It's good for you, not good for me. No, I think we see that he deserves everything. Deserves our life itself, deserves our trust because he is trustworthy. Do we endure suffering for him? Yeah, of course. If this is who he is, but if we're honest, this should seem a bit overwhelming. If this is the God we're supposed to have a relationship with, we're supposed to trust, it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? This is who he is? This is who I have to encounter every day, all the time? Where do I even start? Well, there is a plot twist in this story. And it's almost brushed over, but it's, it's, it's really amazing. It comes up a lot later in Hebrews. Because you have this picture. God has... Long ago, in many times, many ways, he did lots of things for the prophets and fathers. Finally, he has spoken. Finally, he has spoken by his son, who really is me, God. This is really me, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the heir, he's the creator, he's the sustainer. And then, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne, at the right hand of the majesty on high. After this guy made purification for my sins? Yeah, it's the same one. This person, this God, he's the one who dealt with your sin. So he doesn't just stay in all of this power and might and authority. He's the same God who came and purged away your sin. That's the, the word there is the word we get from for catharsis. He he purged it away. He didn't just forgive it. He didn't just forget about it. He doesn't just set it aside. He purges it away. Sin is something that needs to be dealt with. It's serious. And he takes all that power. And notice what he's holding together. He's holding together the power and authority and right with passion and care. He knows your sin. Later, Hebrews will talk about he is the Savior who was tempted just as you are. He took on your flesh and blood to participate in being a human. And so this trust relationship is one that God can still, we can still relate to him. It's an amazing, amazing sort of plot twist. And we heard it even in the, in the absolution today from Hebrews 7, how he is still interceding for us. Why, is he, why did he sit down? By the way, have you ever asked that? Why did he sit? Was he tired? He did a lot of work on, on, you know, death, resurrection. That was a lot of work. So he had to sit, take a break. No, he's not tired. He's not lazy. He's done. He's done. The priests in the Old Testament temple, they had to stand the whole time. They had to stand the whole time because they're always doing something more. There's another sacrifice to do. More Israelites are sinning. We've got to bring another sacrifice. Jesus does his work sits down in majesty on high, and he reigns. He reigns now as he's interceding for us, uniting us to himself with the power that he has from the beginning of all creation. It's this 
once for all thing that again comes up throughout Hebrews. That he did it. This is past tense. This is something that he has done. And so if you think again into this context, what is threatening our trust for him? Does he have integrity and honesty to be who he says he is? Yeah. Does he have this vulnerability to really show us who he is? Or is he holding back part of who, who he is? No, he's showing us fully. Does he have the power and might to, to actually help us? Yeah, he's not just vulnerable. He's not just suffering with us to be in solidarity. He actually has the power to reach down and deal with our sin. Man, this is the God that we get to worship today. What should this change about your, your anxiety, your frantic search for something new, your, your lack of trust in Christ? He's not a king who is hard to reach. He's not a king that stays far above us. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords who made purification for our sins so that we could draw near. That he would be to us who he is in reality. That he would be the all in all that he already is. He already is that. His glory shines whether anyone else sees it or not, just like a beautiful painting is beautiful whether anyone sees it or not. He shines Christ whether anyone sees it, but he wants us to draw near out of that. For the praise of his glorious grace, simply because he chose to do that. He chose to share himself with us. It's really quite amazing. So let me just end with this Wesley hymn. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. uh, I forget what it's called. Thou source of calm repose or something like that. Hidden source of calm repose. And it ends like this. Jesus, my all in all thou art. My rest and toil, my ease and pain, the medicine of my broken heart. In war, my peace, and loss, my gain. My smile beneath the tyrant's frown, and shame, my glory, and my crown. In want, my plentiful supply, in weakness, my almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty, my light in Satan's darkest hour. In grief, my joy unspeakable, my life and death, my heaven and hell. And so we really have to, that's what I leave you with, is, is Christ supremely trustworthy 